Hello, my name is Mauricia Baca, and this is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker. This is season three. Can you believe it? I, I know I've, I've said that before, but season three already, this is just incredible. I cannot believe that we are already at season three. Oh my gosh. And thank you all so much for your support and encouragement and for just gravitating to the message of compassion. Vegas is such an incredible community and we have so many amazing things happening that I just want to make sure everyone knows about it. And you are absolutely a part of making sure we know what's happening right here in our community and across the world. So joining me for today's episode is an individual who is so passionate, so competent, so compassionate that I think you're really going to enjoy what she has to share and the conversation we engage in. We are talking about what I now think is the absolutely most crucial topic around compassion, which is our planet and the environment. So please help me welcome our guest. Hello. Hello, Will. It is a pleasure to join you. Thank you so much for having me on Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I am so glad you are here and a part of Compassionate Las Vegas, the movement. What you bring is such a clarity and insight on what really matters. And in the short time you've been working with us, you've transformed really our entire view of what matters. And what I mean by that is compassion is, of course, the key in the center, but extending that compassion, not just to ourselves and to others, but to our planet, because without this planet, there is no us. So just thank you for that. And thank you for bringing that insight. Oh, well, thank you. It's, uh, it's, it's my, I, I suppose my pleasure. Um, it's one of those strange things where the environment is in such dire straits right now that it's not entirely a pleasure, but I think it's really, it's such an important thing. And when we extend compassion to the planet and to our environment, we're actually also creating a full circle where we are extending it to ourselves and to others around us. Because uh, really, without this planet, where are we? Um, so compassion towards the environment and the planet really does um, nurture and sustain all of us. Absolutely. And I can, I can relate to that it being kind of that both sides of the coin where it's, it's such an uncomfortable subject that it, it's uncomfortable. And, and that, in fact, Karen Armstrong <laughs> says a compassionate city is an uncomfortable city because we deal with what's really happening. It's not just the warm and fuzzies. It's the, the real, uh, concerns and critical issues as well. Um, for you, what drove you into this awareness, this consciousness of a concern for our environment? It's something that I, I, I remember having with me, I think, all my life. A lot of it was instilled by my parents. Um, 
I was born in Mexico and my father used to put me on his back and go hiking with me in the hills in, in Mexico. And so he, he claims, he always claimed credit for why I love the environment. He said it was because as a baby, he walked around with me. Um, when I was a little girl, we moved back to the United States. My mother was from the United States and we were in New York City. And a lot of folks may wonder, how do you get connected to the environment in New York City? But I actually think that many of us who grow up in an urban context, and especially my family was very low income in an urban context, to some extent, you appreciate the environment perhaps even more because you have such a lack of some of the things that some folks may take for granted. Um, for me, I was fortunate enough to be not too far away from Central Park. And so I used to spend countless hours in Central Park, which to, to people who have grown up in more of a real countryside, they may not think of Central Park as the wilderness, but to me, it was a wilderness. And it was a place where I connected to that experience of being able to climb a tree and scramble up and down rocks and see birds and experience something of nature. And so it was something that really set me on that path of wanting to know more and experience more. I used to spend hours watching science, PBS, but um, public television was uh, something that was just an incredible sanctuary for me. And I just dreamed about wanting to give back. And so ever since I was a little girl, that's essentially what, what has sustained me. Um, and I really am glad that now as my, for my life, I, I have a career where I work in the environment. Yeah, that's so cool. So born in Mexico, then ending up in New York City, which I love Central Park. I just, I, I've been lost in Central Park so many times in a good way. And um, now here you are in, in Las Vegas. So you've seen so much of our country and other parts of the world. What would you say is unique about Las Vegas that makes us prime for really doing some great environmental work? Our area here in Las Vegas and in Southern Nevada, it's so fascinating because our population has grown so quickly. And when you look at the map of the, the boundaries of the city, it's just, it's grown incredibly fast in just the past decade plus. Um, and I think that as we've grown and as our community has matured and come together, there's also been this growing awareness of how important our environment is around us. Um, when I first moved to Southern Nevada, it was in 2006. And I remember not as many people being connected to the fact that there were incredible outdoor experiences, literally minutes from the, the city borders, you know, we're encircled by incredible places here. We have, um, we have the Spring Mountains, we have the Desert National Wildlife Refuge, we have Lake Mead National Recreation Area, we have Sloan Canyon National Conservation Area, Red Rock Canyon National Conservation Area, just moments away almost from Las Vegas. But many people I used to speak with didn't even know that these places were here. I'm going to put in a plug for the Get Outdoors Nevada app with the Southern Nevada Health District. Such an incredible resource. That tool just lets you know all of the trails and, and parks and water areas, which that blew, blew my mind when I got here and met some friends. They're like, yeah, we're going to go hang out at this place. So, you know, let's go take a walk. And I get there and it's like nature. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> what happened? 
It's true. At Clark County Wetlands Park, for instance, it's an incredible place where you can, the birds migrate through there in massive numbers. And so you go there or the Henderson Bird Viewing Preserve, and you realize that, again, while the middle of the of Las Vegas downtown might feel very urban, you're really close to some incredibly beautiful experiences. And really all of us are connected to that. Um, and and uh, thank you for that plug. Um, it's Neon's Nature. So anybody can download that for free. And that was something I had the pleasure of working on when I was with Get Outdoors Nevada. Um, and it's just, I think it's it's so important for us to realize how important it is to be connected to nature. One of the things that my previous organization, Get Outdoors Nevada, focused on was connecting young people to nature. Unfortunately, there are so many kids who live in communities where they don't have access to parks and trails, where their you know, school, it, it can be a struggle just to pay for paper, let alone to get field trips. So that was part of what that organization does and continues to do is to connect people to those experiences. And then I would work with the Nature Conservancy now. So as people learn about the environment, then the next step is taking that action and engaging with and um, helping to ensure that all of us have uh, an incredible planet for generations and generations to come. Yeah, it, it does start with youth. I will say one of the best and worst experiences of my life was going away with my dad to a camp of some sorts. We ended up in a cabin. It was with my school, you know, but I don't remember why I agreed to go because it was completely disconnected. I mean, outdoor plumbing, I mean, no plumbing, outdoor toilet. Um, <laughs> It just was horrible in, in the best way possible because I got to ride a, a horse for the first time and we climbed in the trees and they had the, the trail set up up in the air and just, just gave me a sense and appreciation for nature and the beauty and the majesty that, mm -hmm. that it holds, even in the silence where there's never truly silence, but it feels... It feels sacred even because it, it's not like the urban setting. There's an energy that doesn't come from the lights and electricity and, and TVs. There's an energy that comes from life itself there. And getting that experience as a youth helped to transform the way I see the world now. That, that's an incredible story that you just shared. It's true when you're out there, um, it just it kind of hums through you. I had never had an experience quite like that until when I was in college, I, I was with the Student Conservation Association. I signed up to be, work with them and be a biotechnician at Crater Lake National Park. Um, my boss at the time was sort of depressed when he found out about me because he was getting this city kid working with him on the lake. Um, it worked out wonderfully. We got along really well. <clears throat> but I got to live at Crater Lake National Park and wander around there and go hiking and sleep at Wizard Island in the middle of the lake. And that experience of being in such a quiet place was really just an incredibly magical experience. Um, I think it, it's something that the environment, nature, sitting in Central Park, even all of that, it, it, it kind of, it fills your cup. You know, it, it really is healing and it's healing mind, body, and soul. And I think as we that's part of coming back in that connection of as we take care of the planet, we really are taking care of ourselves. You know, clean air, clean water, 
um, making sure that we have a great, just that everything is preserved. Um, really, that's it, it's imperative. And I think who doesn't love hiking or being out outdoors or at least just picnicking or you know taking photos of something beautiful. You don't even have to be an incredibly active person to just be out there and appreciate it. You really don't. And one of the, again, one of those joys that was painful was traveling cross country. So born and raised in Michigan, I moved to Texas and then to Nevada. And the move from Michigan to Texas, I drove. The move from Texas to Nevada, I drove. <laughs> and so I've seen firsthand the diversity of our land and just how how much land there really is sometimes you forget when you're in the city like because everything's so close together but when you go for miles and miles and miles and it's just nature yeah. that is almost a religious experience i would say um but i want to turn to something a little bit more uncomfortable and mm -hmm. that's what's happening with our government here in nevada and, and las vegas around these issues I'm seeing commercials every day around water conservation, and I will never forget when it hit me that Lake Mead is so low. Visiting Nevada as a child, we would always go to Hoover Dam, and it was overflowing. It was unbelievable. The water just was rushing over and over, and just so much water. And now it's a ring, like it's an empty bathtub. What is happening? Can we pump in water through pipes? What what do we need to be doing? And why didn't we start earlier? It is an incredibly challenging question. Uh, our region, the Western region, has been experiencing drought for over 20 years now. So it's been an extended drought. Um, and it's got such a different set of complicated um, reasons for why we are experiencing it. Climate change is one of the is one of the reasons behind it because as we have less precipitation um, and for the for Lake Mead that's precipitation more in the Rockies and in the mountains during the winter you need to get the snowpack and you have to have the water that's coming down and really feeding um, the Colorado River and Lake Mead. Before we go further on that. I don't understand this concept of a 20-year drought. For me, a drought is like a season or two. So how do we have a 20-year drought? Well, and that's the thing. Just a season of low rain by itself is actually, that wouldn't be a problem. It's when it's consistent year after year after year, because then you get into this cycle where the, the forests, for instance, get more dry, the rangelands get more dry, and then we've experienced, for instance, this year, these, and for the past couple of years now, these terrible wildfires. Part of those are symptomatic of the fact that our forests have actually become very dry. So prescribed burning um, has helped uh, in some areas, but even with that, um, the forests are just at such a dry state in part because they're not getting that kind of snowpack that they really need to be getting um, during the winter months and getting nurtured the way that they need to be nurtured. You have to have um, great groundwater to sustain them as well. And so as we use our surface water um, more and more, we start to tap into our groundwater. Um, but it's, it's a cycle that we can work to change. 
And I think that's part of what is significant and important because, um, you know, and we can take action to change it. I was just actually looking at, um, I'm going to pull this up in front of me, so that, uh, it's actually Greta Thunberg, who is a wonderful young person from Sweden who's been speaking about the environment. And she says, the one thing we need more than hope is action. Once we start to act, hope is everywhere. And here in, here in Nevada, actually, we've taken a lot of action to, um, to minimize our water use, although our population has been growing. Um, our industries have taken a lot of action to use gray water instead of fresh water. Um, there's been a diminishing of things like uh, ornamental grass and lawns, which um, the desert isn't, isn't really intended for ornamental grass and lawns. Um, so with as we do xeriscaping and plant um, more native plants that are that are better for arid dry climates and also help sustain like bird the birds and the butterflies you know like when you when you take out your your lawn and you put in that native the native flowers for instance you get an incredible treat of seeing birds and butterflies coming in and enjoying yeah. those flowers let me ask you about the ornamental grass piece because i'm from michigan grass just grows that's you know kind of what we have but when I look at the fact that in my small neighborhood, we've got probably 30 homes in, in my little sub. Out of the 30, I would say 15 or 20 have swimming pools. Just my sense is a swimming pool uses a bit more water than grass. So what is, why is that the best action to start with? It, they both use a substantial amount of water. Um, but when you think about when you, when, um, when you water a, a relatively small lawn, for instance, the the irrigation system is going to get a bunch of that water on the grass, but a lot of it, you're, you see it when you walk around, right? You see water pouring down the side of the street and going into the gutters because it's not all getting into the grass. It's actually not very efficient. And you have to use a tremendous amount of water to actually keep a relatively small patch of grass looking happy. <laughs> um, and if there's any kind of slope, it makes it just that much more challenging. So the smaller the patch, um, the, more, the greater the slope, the harder it is to water efficiently, and the more water that you wind up not applying to your grass, but instead of kind of sending down the drain. Um, so that's, it's, it's a relatively simple thing that can be done. And actually um, the Southern Nevada Water Authority gives, uh, they, they do actually have a subsidy that will there, where they incentivize people to take out their grass. I would encourage folks, one simple action you can take if you do have a lawn is you can go to the Southern Nevada Water Authority and you can find out about that subsidy. I actually did that in my own home. I used that and it essentially paid for us taking out our grass. Um, and I am now one of those people who thoroughly enjoy seeing the birds and the butterflies enjoying the uh, the desert appropriate flowers that we have planted. It's it's much more vibrant in, in, in our front yard than it was before actually. But that's a bit counterintuitive because you would think the greenery would attract the wildlife, but it will, if you think about the fact that it's native and the animals lived here first, then that, that does make sense. So yeah. the pollinators <laughs> love the flowers, you know, the grass doesn't do much for pollinators, but the flowers do. 
Yeah. So then starting with the ornamental grass, what else can we do? And really, what are the roadblocks? Because we we talk about the importance of this. But again, when I came here 25 years ago, 30, wow, 30 years ago now for the first time, um, we're going to cut that out in post because no one needs to know. <laughs> um, but, you know, this it wasn't really an issue. They were talking about it on the news. They're like, yeah, you know, in, in years, we'll have to start thinking about water, but it's happened so rapidly. Just what is what is really the, the barrier and what, what caused some of this? Um, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, how did this happen <laughs> to this magnitude without us doing something dramatic to fix it? It's, it's an excellent question. I, I think, Many people have been aware of the drought and of the challenges kind of coming towards us. Um, that's part of why the Water Authority, for instance, had been taking measures ahead of time. But uh, unfortunately, I think it may be part of the human condition that sometimes it takes a crisis to help you really understand how bad it was. Um, I guess it's that classic, you know, um, adage of the the frog and boiling water you know that it just gets a little bit worse and you're not quite taking it as seriously as you should um, now everybody I think it, it's hard to ignore the critical state that we're in um, but we really can take those actions for instance as our our area does continue and needs to thrive economically but as we put in new homes they can be water smart homes um, there are ways that we can conserve water within our homes that way. Um, and th just thinking about the ways also just on a bigger, bigger scale, it is that question of climate change, looking at what we can do to help preserve, sustain, and restore our forests, our rangelands, our wetlands. These are the natural systems that help preserve and sustain us. So the more that we can do, to help them, the more we're also helping ourselves um, because they're capturing carbon from the air. They're helping us by um, generating and sustaining the rain cycle that we need so much. Um, it really is, a, it, it truly is a cycle and a system. So if we can invest in um, restoring our forests in protecting our forests, and by doing that, it doesn't mean um, never having fire, but it means um, controlling fire, as our indigenous peoples did for generations. They had controlled burns, um, so they they reached a, a nice uh, they they reached a balance with with fire and forests and rangelands. Um, and so, if we can come back to some of that balance, um, we can find a place where nature, wildlife, and people can coexist, but we have to just do it with intentionality and thoughtfulness. Um, and as we look into things like creating green energy, we can create green energy while also ensuring that we um, sustain those spaces that our wildlife and ecosystems need. Every time we talk, I learn something. And what you just really sparked for me is education is key. Because in a previous conversation we had, I'm like, look, just build a pipeline and bring the water from the East Coast to the West Coast solution, right? But um, I noted to check with people like you that are experts in this before you know, radically going off to do something. But just learning why little things make a big difference 
I think helps us as people to really buy into it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just human nature, as you mentioned, it's just resistant to change in general. And it's also resistant and almost rebellious against mandating anything. So, you know, the the watering days and why can't I water on on this day? I want to water this day and little things like that um, that really are just minor, minor tweaks. You press a button on your your rainbird and it does it for you. (laughs) Um, But still people are resistant to it. Um, But I think having these kind of conversations and just sharing why is is so key. And it's, it's really inexpensive to educate. Mm-hmm. Just having those conversations and it, it, to use the wildfire, a little spark can turn into a wildfire. Um, but in this case, in a good way, a wildfire of information. Mm-hmm. Do you see a, a shift in, in our community, but nationally or even globally, where people are starting to recognize how this subject actually does impact them personally? Are they starting to care about this now? What are you seeing? I do think that more and more people are starting to care about it because it is impacting more and more people. Um, In one of our earlier conversations, we had talked about the climate crisis being almost an empathy crisis because in so many, for so many people, it was something that affected someone else. And sometimes it can be hard to really have that empathy um, and understand, oh, you know, there's, there's an island where it's slowly going underwater as the, as, as the oceans rise, but I'm not there, you know, or, um, or it can be overwhelming because maybe you're seeing those horrifically sad videos of polar bears just trying to find ice to swim to, but it feels very far away. In the past couple of years, it's come really close to people. So we've experienced things you know, such as the incredible cold and heat that um, hit Texas, for instance, and they had their power outages. Here in Nevada, we have experienced it. Um, it was almost on a daily basis in some parts of Nevada with the smoke from the wildfires. So that not only did we know that our forests were burning, but our our friends, family, relatives, ourselves, we couldn't go outside and be healthy. Um, up in up in Reno, I was up there and I spent a few days and it was so hard to just walk outside without feeling the smoke in your throat. I was wearing a face mask, not just for COVID, but for, for the wildfire. And my, my clothes smelled like smoke when I, when I got home to Henderson. Um, but People up there, you know, like their their kids couldn't play outside. They're, they couldn't take dogs for walks. You know, like some of those very simple things. Um, and so, as that reality comes to comes comes into play, I think more and more people are understanding this. Um, you know, in some places in the world, there's already been a need for water rationing, and there's been water shortages. So, um, the one danger is that you can go almost down a very dire rabbit hole, you know, kind of the doom scrolling on Twitter, for instance, where you just see all the the bad news. So I do think it's incredibly important that while so many of us are being impacted by it and we realize that like it, it it's a heavy weight that we can start to lift that heavy weight by actually taking action and doing small things, um, as well as large things, we can encourage our elected officials to do things that are going to be positive for the environment. We can do the small things like 
having a reusable grocery bag, using less plastic. Um, if you love eating meat, you don't have to necessarily stop eating it, but just eat it a little bit less because cattle, does, they, they do um, result in more methane and more uh, carbon for the environment than a plant-based diet, but you don't have to go entirely plant-based. So it doesn't have to be a completely one thing or the other, but small changes and small actions can actually bring us towards a much better place. So if we all take those small changes together, um, it's that model of collective impact. You know, you can do so much together. You know, one person, me by myself, um, I may not be able to lift an incredibly heavy desk, but if I have a few people doing it with me, we can move it pretty easily. Um, and we can all just do that together. We can lift our weights together much more easily than we can if we feel like we're just alone. So beautifully said, so beautifully said. When the wildfire smoke reached Nevada or Las Vegas in particular, it sent me into a bit of a state of anxiety and even depression around it. It was my first time really seeing it. I've always been very empathetic. And in fact, when I was in elementary school, I was interviewed by the news and because my grandma was filling up her gas tank on what we had at the time called Ozone Action Day. And she was a science teacher. I was very upset that my science teacher grandmother who knew better was still filling her tank. And somehow a news crew was there. I don't know how it, it, they were, happened to be there, but they were, and they talked to me and it ended up giving me a TV show on the news network um, because of it. But um, when I saw the smoke, I didn't know it was smoke. I just was like, oh, it's hazy out, it's clouds. Again, being from Michigan, I'm used to clouds. But as I started off on my morning walk, like something's not right. And I, I do this for a living. I talk about the environment and smoke and, and, and all of that, mm -hmm. but it just wasn't connecting because I'd never personally experienced it. And so I stopped at a park bench and sat down. I'm like, what's going on? And I checked my air quality meter and it was like, basically stay indoors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, I've not seen this before. And I felt so powerless in that moment because what could I do to clear the air? It felt like there was absolutely nothing I could control in that moment. And the entire world seemed to cave in because we're still in the midst of COVID and fighting with people about masks and vaccination and not even hearing each other in that. And then the smoke is taking over and we don't have water and, and, and the list goes mm -hmm. on. But exactly what you said reignited that hope and faith, which is I can control what I do. Mm -hmm. And so I can recycle. I can use less water. I can eat less meat, as you mentioned. You know, these little small lifestyle changes that when I do it and my neighbors do it and their neighbors do it, it really creates such a huge change. And it puts us back in the driver's seat of our destiny. And that's really what I'm hearing you say is it doesn't have to be a massive effort on an individual's part. It just takes a massive amount of individuals doing something. So I, I think that perspective really makes it more attainable and less overwhelming, at least for me personally. I think that that's exactly right. I mean, really, the big social changes that have happened, they haven't happened because one person did something. They've happened because people came together to make to make things happen um, uh, and really 
collective impact is is the answer. All of those little things, all of those little changes do genuinely add up. But I, I think uh, what you just spoke about is it, the, the past couple of years, <laughs> it's felt relentless. And so it is really challenging um, when you do turn on the news and you, you see the wildfire, when you go for a walk and you experience the wildfire um, effects of the smoke. And even our, even our neighbors out to the east of us uh, have actually been experiencing the smoke from our wildfires in the west. Um, and, and it can feel so relentless. Um, but if you start to take those small steps, you can make a big difference. You know, there's the that old adage, um, how to eat it, how to how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? I don't advise anybody eat elephants. Elephants are fabulous. And, but, <laughs> but it is that that idea that like just a little bit at a time, you can actually you can accomplish something big. Um, so and and we all can be part of it. We can all join together and be part of it and feel like we're really doing something together but it's it's just and it doesn't have anything to do with what party you subscribe to um it's it transcends politics it transcends really any divisions or differences um we're all the same under the sun moon and stars at at the end of the day we all need this planet and so we can all come together to make sure that we have this planet for eons to come for someone who feels as though, yes, they'll participate once the big changes happen, how would you get them involved now? So, for example, one of the arguments I hear is, well, you know, the, the stars are jetting around on their private jets, which that's way more pollution than my little automobile. Or, you know, they'll talk about the Bellagio with the huge fountains. They're like, well, they use so much water. I, I'll use whatever water I want until they change. You know, lots of reasons, right? And a lot of ideas around there are, are really big things that should happen first. What would you say to enroll that person into making changes personally on a small scale? Well, the change that you do make on your small scale is going to make a big difference when you and all of your neighbors do it. Um, and there is uh, there's there is the societal pressure as well. There's if a if a celebrity is jetting about and they wind up hearing from people that you know folks would actually like to see them showing maybe a better a better example to all of us. Um, Maybe they'll they'll change that, but at the end of the day, we we can't change anyone else. We can only change ourselves, and by taking that action and doing what we can within our own control of ourselves, we can make a big difference. Um, what we can also do is we can write letters to our um, our Congress people and our senators and our our mayors and our council people. And I think here in Nevada, we have an incredibly um, amazing access to our elected officials and we can actually make a lot of change at a local level here it's one of the things that i love about this state we might be very large geographically in some ways but we have incredible access to our officials and we have very responsive elective elected officials so you can do things just on your own very personal scale but you can also reach out to your elected officials and they're very open to talking to people and, and hearing from people. And we have so much that we can just do right here in Nevada, which I'll have to give the plug that we are 
I think the 11th most biodiverse state in the nation. So we might be the driest state in the nation, but we're one of the most biodiverse. We have over 300 endemic species, meaning species found nowhere else but here in Nevada. Wow. Which is my boggling. No yeah. So by no doing idea. things to say to for this state, we're actually doing things that can contribute towards the thriving of over 300 endemic species in addition to the 3 million people who live here. Yeah. See, again, another another moment of just <laughs> learning something. And and that's what a, your point around people being accessible I think is really special in our community because what that means is we don't have to to distance ourselves from the process of government. Sometimes we'll feel as though, well, you know, government and then us, and it's not, it's not really how it is, especially for us in Nevada, because we are really able to partner. And people who are experts in the field like yourself, just keep educating us who are just out here in the community, just, you know, meandering about um, so that when we do encounter our officials that can make change, we have a little bit of something we can share or at least have a, a broader picture of the entire system. And we can see how each piece of it affects every other piece. So uh, again, thank you for just the, the wisdom you're sharing. Uh, my last question for you is simply, how do you define compassion? At, at its essence for me, it's it's opening yourself up to understanding and empathy really for for anyone and for everything, for any creature. Um, it's It's opening that door and remaining curious and empathetic. I, I really, really like that. That resonates with me. I want to thank you for joining the podcast and sharing so much amazing information, uh, just helping us to get, get caught up a little bit on some of the whys and the what's regarding environmental issues. I do want to know what's on your playlist right now. What music are you listening to to keep you inspired and to lift you up? And maybe if there's a song in particular that would be like the song you think could be like a Las Vegas theme song, what might that be? <laughs> that is an excellent question. Um, honestly, oh gosh. So I, I was just watching the documentary about Aretha Franklin just uh, the other night and she's always been one of my absolute favorites and respect is just an amazing song that I think is a strong powerful song and a happy song and if we can all respect ourselves and each other I think we'll, we'd all be better for it um, so that's always been a song that has uh, has lifted me up and inspired me I love that. And again, shout out to Detroit Motown. Aretha Franklin was, you know, an icon. Really quick story. I, I was uh, working for a telecommunications company in Michigan and a call came through my line and it was Aretha Franklin. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> and I didn't think Aretha would call about her own issues, right? So I'm like, wow, you've got a really famous name. And she says, yes, I've worked really hard for this name. <laughs> 
That is mind boggling. That's fantastic. I think I might have screamed in her ear if I'd heard. <laughs> oh, trust me. I hit the mute button. I'm like, it's a read. It's a read. You know, so yeah, really fond memory. That's but fantastic. With that, I think we can leave it there. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Will. I will say one more plug because I was thinking about this. I neglected to mention one of the little things that people can do is to volunteer. Um, there are so many organizations. My former one, Get Outdoors Nevada, is one of them. Friends of Nevada Wilderness, Friends of Sloan Canyon, Friends of Red Rock Canyon. We have a lot of friends groups here in the area where you can go out and really just literally help clean up and take care. And many of our council members and commissioners do these cleanups. So it's also a great way to be out there and have a chance to speak to your council members and commissioners. Um, again, it's one of those things here in Nevada that's really special. Yeah, that's, and that's something we promote very, very heavy with Compassion Las Vegas is simply volunteer. And I love doing hikes and nature walks. So that's something I think I want to add to my rotation. So thank you for sharing that part. Thank you again. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, it's a pleasure to be here on the Compassionate Las Vegas podcast and a pleasure and an honor to be part of the movement of Compassionate Las Vegas. We are so glad to have you. So yay. And that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> awesome no thank you for I, i'm i'm like i'm gonna go to to just your school like just teach me your thing um wow uh oh thank you it's always a pleasure speaking with you and and hearing about your own experiences thank you absolutely